the thing that was really kind of nuts and unexpected is that the game stuff took off like crazy to the point that it was distracting right and we're not gonna shy away from it like that was our bread and butter like hey people want to use it for the game we're getting all this data in we're crowdsourcing a map of the world we're learning where people go we've got massive user numbers we're raising money off that we're building out a huge data science team we figured out we're not a social media company we are a technology company we are a data company back when big data was fashionable like we were one of the companies like we are a big data city guy that's what we are we never use that term anymore, but that, that really, I think, summed up what it was for that particular moment in time. But no matter what we did, we couldn't shake people of the game mechanics. And you always had this thing where people were like, I don't want to check into places. If I'm not going to check in, it's not for me. No, 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 no. The whole thing is a city guy. The check-in is like the smoke and mirrors part of it. That was Dennis Crowley talking about Foursquare, his beloved social media app and location-based game that was hugely popular in the early 2010s. Except, as you just heard, the thing everyone loved wasn't the thing he was actually trying to build. Are you ready to hear the story? Let's get dialed in. Hi, welcome to Webmasters. It's your favorite entrepreneurship and startup podcast, the one where we learn how to be better entrepreneurs by hearing what I like to think of as war stories from some of the internet's most successful and impactful innovators. I'm your host, Aaron Dinan. I'm a serial entrepreneur and I teach entrepreneurship at Duke University. On this episode, we're gonna dig into the story of Foursquare, a company I feel like most of you listening would have probably heard of, but what's fascinating about the Foursquare story is that what the company actually does and what people think it does are two very different things. And well, sometimes that's how stuff works in the entrepreneurial world. In order to get consumers doing more of what you need, you've got to give them something else they want. It's called gamification, and it was a huge part of Foursquare's success. We're going to talk all about why and how, but first, I'm going to take a quick minute to talk about our sponsor. Webmasters is being brought to you thanks in part to the amazing support of our sponsor, Latonas. Latonas is a boutique mergers and acquisitions broker. They help people buy and sell cash flow positive internet businesses and digital assets. That includes things like content websites, Amazon FBAs, e-commerce stores, Shopify sites, SaaS apps, domain portfolios, probably even popular podcasts if you've got one lying around. Basically, if you're running a business that's digital and it's making money, Latonas can help you get it sold for a great price. Just reach out to their expert team and ask them how. Or if you're interested in buying a digital business, head on over to the Latonas website where you'll find listings for all the businesses they're currently selling. Be sure to bookmark it, check back regularly. Those listings are always changing with new opportunities constantly being added. That website is latonas.com, L-A-T-O-N-A-S.com. When most people think of Foursquare, they think of that phone app where you check into places, earn badges, become mayor, climb up the leaderboard, and you know, those kind of things. 
And that's fine. It's, it's actually what the company wanted people thinking about back when it launched in 2009. However, that was never the company Dennis Crowley, Foursquare's founder, was ever interested in building. Instead, Dennis was interested in a much more interesting problem. Here, I'll let him tell you all about it. I had never lived in a big city and went down to New York City and I was kind of overwhelmed with people, places, and things to do. And just like, there's a better way to manage all this, right? Like I used to spend my nights trying to like, okay, I have my friends from Syracuse. And then I know these people that live across the hall from me in my new apartment and my friends from Jupiter. Like, how do you connect all of them in one night as a recent post-college grad would do? And it was inefficient. We should be able to make something that's better than that. Cities are fascinating. You know, I think living in New York, I've been in New York since 1998. So it's like 23, 24 years. And I'm raising my kids here. I want to live in the city. I love cities. And in grad school, I kind of got exposed to people that were urban planners for the first time, people that had studied cities and people that were very thoughtful about cities. The first time I read any Jane Jacobs or Kevin Lynch or, or any of that stuff. And the Venn diagram of what technology can do, what cities are, and you know, the opportunity to change the way that people experience cities, like that's my wheelhouse. And so this comes up a bunch. I always get pegged as the location technology guy, even post force growth. Like, what are you doing? You do another location technology startup. I'm like, that's not what I do. I build things that bring people together in urban spaces. Right. And sometimes you need to know about where places are to do that. And sometimes you have to build 10 years of a technology stack in order to solve that problem. But the crux of what I've been trying to do is, you know, software that brings people together to have more interesting experiences, to change the way they experience the world around them. Bringing people together in urban spaces, helping change the way people experience the world around them. Those are the kinds of things Dennis cared about and still cares about. How do you do that? Well, it's not an easy problem to solve. In fact, it's a problem Dennis began grappling with long before he launched Foursquare. It all started when he was first exposed to the internet and World Wide Web and began wondering how they might change the world. I can remember sitting at the kitchen table in my parents' house, and I can vaguely remember the layout of the page, you know, with a big picture of Mark Andreessen on it, like in the business section of the Boston Globe. And I knew there was something really interesting here because I had spent a lot of time on like Prodigy and AOL. And there was another service called Delphi, which like could get you into the Newsnet, Newsnet services. And like I knew enough to be like, there's really cool stuff I just don't have access to. And I think I might have subscribed to Wired at that point. So I was kind of, you know, seeing through the pages of the magazine, like this is whole other world of stuff that I just can't get my hands on. That's a really interesting time. And I was consuming as many books as I could. I mean, it would be like five books a year published about the internet. So you consume all five of them or whatever. You know, the early Stephen Levy books and the Nicholas Negroponte being digital book and Bill Gates's Road Ahead, like all that stuff. It shaped my perception of what the future would look like and what you would be able to do. And I think that's kind of like the base level of DNA that created all the stuff that I ended up working on. And when did you start actively experimenting with the web and creating stuff on it? I was really into publishing, which is one of the reasons I went to Syracuse, because they have a good communication school there. I liked making fanzines and writing articles and stuff on Prodigy and super nerd high school stuff. 
And when I got to college, I kind of abandoned some of the stuff. I'm like, I'm not going to write a magazine about video games. But it turned into a way to tell stories about what we were doing in college. We would go out and we would have a disposable camera, not a digital one, disposable camera, take photos of the weekend, develop them, scan them, and then put them on the web and be like, hey, this is what we did. This is pretty cool. It was scrapbooking, basically. I was telling the story of what we were doing to my high school friends that were at different schools at the time. And then, you know, meeting people on the internet that were doing the same thing. Justin's links from the underground. I mean, there was a very, very small group of people that were doing this stuff at the time. And you're just like storytelling on the internet for an audience of who knows how many, but it just felt like this is the thing to do. By the way, if you were listening closely, you heard Dennis reference Justin's links from the underground. That would be Justin Hall, creator of Links.net, and the man often credited as being, if not the first, then one of the very first personal bloggers and online content creators. We actually talked with Justin in Webmasters episode number 31. Check it out if you haven't already. It's interesting to know that Justin's work documenting his life online helped inspire Dennis, who himself got started online by, well, documenting his life and the exploits and activities of his college buddies. It was this social community building and sharing that ultimately laid the foundation for what would become Foursquare, though there were lots of important steps and missteps along the way between community building as a college kid and building a multi-billion dollar location mapping company. So let's learn about some of those, shall we? My freshman year, I lived in a dorm that you couldn't get internet in your room, so you had to go down to the computer cluster, just like a room that has computers in it with no windows. And then the second year, my roommate and I, we chose our dorm based upon which one had high-speed internet. And it's like, oh, we're going to need to be in this dorm. We're going to need to be on the first floor. This room is the best room, you know, whatever. And we had one of those like web cameras, like a Logitech quick cam. And we would get our friends together and like do live streams of us playing quarters, like drinking games and stuff. So stupid. But like, that's just what you did, right? No one's done this before. We should totally do this. You know, just really dumb experimental stuff. You felt like you were pushing the boundaries of things at the time. So how'd you go from fooling around with your buddies on the internet to building an internet company? What motivated you or I guess excited you enough to make a career out of this nascent web thingy? Yes. Well, so the first four years of I guess the internet, right? Because I think I started college around year one of the web browser, 94. And so by the time I graduated in 98, there was internet advertising agencies, episodic web, serial stuff, people pushing the edge of what you could do with like QuickTime VR. I don't know if you remember that format, but it was kind of like Google Street View, but on a CD-ROM. And, uh, you know, just like lots of really interesting stuff. I used to subscribe to the Wall Street Journal at the time because it was the only coverage on what was going on in the internet. And all this stuff was happening in New York. And so I wanted to get down to New York. And every time I read an article, I had a quote from these analysts that work at this company called Jupiter Communication. And I was like, I got to go to this company. All these articles mentioned all the smart people that work there. I got to go to this place and work with these smart people. So I didn't want to go to a startup. And it wasn't like a product I was chasing. It was just like, where are the smartest people? So I lobbied and lobbied and lobbied. I eventually got a job at this company making slides, right? But that was like my first entrance to any tech scene, the New York tech scene. And this company, Jupiter, was kind of right in the epicenter of the whole thing. 
I got to meet all the analysts and hang out with all them. There was a pool of young researchers underneath all of them. And I was part of that pod. And our job was just to meet with the people that were making these companies. And by these companies, I mean like all of the companies, the search engines, the music companies, the streaming companies, the technology companies, the customer service companies, catalogs going online, you know, like anyone that was doing anything at the internet wanted to come to Jupiter and pitch the analyst. And so like we sat in on all those meetings for two years and it was super exciting. And, and, you know, you get the sense of like, some of these people are way ahead of their time. Some of these people are full of shit. Some of the stuff is super interesting. Some of the stuff is never going to work. We were right in the middle of it. Like you could not be any more right in the middle of it. And it was amazing. What kinds of things were you seeing at Jupiter Research that were most exciting to you? While I was there, this company came out, it's called Vindigo. And Vindigo was making city guides for Palm Pilots. Palm Pilot is like a cell phone that doesn't work. Um, but back then it was like a magical device that came down from the heavens and you know had a little stylus and stuff. They had crammed every bar and restaurant in New York City into this little device that you would carry with you. And I was just like, this thing, that is a thing. Because I like to go out. My friends like to go out. I got to work at this company. But you weren't really a tech person at that point, right? So how were you going to get yourself into a tech company? You know, I was starting to tinker on the side with building my own stuff, right? I had an idea for my own city guide. We should have a city guide where anyone can add any place and anyone can write a review. Radical idea at the time. And New York was evolving so quickly. And like every week there was like another street that was safe to go down, another neighborhood that was interesting to explore. It was changing so quickly. And the products that people were building, the city guide products that people were building for New York, like they weren't based in New York, they were based in like Seattle or wherever. Someone should make one of these things in New York for New Yorkers. And I was kind of tinkering on that. That was a project that I used to teach myself how to make web pages. I mean, because I knew how to do HTML, but I didn't know how to program anything. And so after having a lot of these ideas for things I wanted to do, there was just a guy at work that had one of those, like, learn how to do this in 30 days books on his desk at a big red cover. It was like this thick. I'm just going to come in on the weekend and just start burning through this guy's book you know, and learn how to do this. And so I kind of taught myself how to hack basic database-driven web pages together so I could make the city guide, which I did. And I kind of loved it. It was fun. had a lot of friends that were using it. But then that thing was able to get me a job at that company called Vindigo, which was my first real experience. Like, this is a tech company. There's 30 people here. There's stock options. There's parties. It was awesome. (laughs) Okay. So it It kind of sounds like you're at one of those stereotypical late 90s tech boom startups. And of course, all the mess that came with those things. Uh, How'd that end up working out for you? It was maybe the most transformative job I've ever had, although I only was there for one year because I got laid off one year into it. And then when um, I got laid off, I was like rather devastated. It's making pretty good money. The job I wanted to have, what the product I wanted to do, I was super inspired by it. I was just Vindigo was a company that, you know, I got bit by the product bug. I would go out to bars and restaurants. I would see people using the product in the booth next to me on the Palm Pilot with the blue light. And they were using our software, the thing that I was working on during the day. And I was like, that's it. I want to make the things that people use when they go out. Anyway, so we got laid off from Vindigo. Um, I still had some friends at Jupiter. They all got laid off. Dot-com heydays are over. Things are crashing. Pretty much everyone is laid off. No one has any jobs. I have more friends without jobs than with jobs. And people are just kind of bumming around during the day. 
so that's when I took the dodgeball database that I had, database of places in New York, and basic infrastructure for pulling up on web pages. And I had a, a really crappy Sprint phone that had the wireless web. I might have paid an extra $9 a month for the wireless web, which means you'd get uh, four lines of text internet on your phone. And so I hacked together this interface that was like, hey, you could go out. If you went somewhere, you'd say, I, I am here. And it would send a message out to all of your friends. Like, oh, I'm at this bar watching the Yankees game. And 10 of your friends would get the message. And, and then what would often happen, because no one was getting any notifications on their phone at all. If you got one, you'd be like, oh, well, I mean, Dennis is doing something. I guess I'll go meet him. And people just did that. And that's how my whole group of friends just started organizing and meeting up for that, that whole summer of 2001. You may have noticed Dennis use the phrase dodgeball to refer to the database and rudimentary app he built for himself and his friends in order to help them meet up around town. That was actually the origin story of Dennis's first success in the location-based app company space. It was a company called Dodgeball. Dennis and his co-founder, Alex Raynert, began growing it in earnest while graduate students at NYU. It was a bit ahead of its time, but it managed to cultivate a decent-sized and devoted following while laying the foundation for much of what Foursquare would eventually become. I applied to grad schools and I decided to go back to NYU. And NYU had this weird program, it's called ITP. It's kind of like a technology research lab that is in the art school. So it's just like this weird mix of stuff. And I was having this, I was 25 years old at the time, and like, you know, my 25-year-old crisis of like, I really should go to business school, but I don't want to go to business school. I can't even get through the application because it's so disinteresting to me. But this art school, this is interesting, but I'm not an artist. I have no business going here. But I went there and on day one, I met this guy named Alex and he was an ex like Razorfish designer, like, you know, Razorfish, the studio. Razorfish, by the way, was the notorious New York-based internet design firm that built an outsized reputation for itself in the late 90s. We heard all about it back in Webmasters episode number 12, featuring Razorfish co-founder Craig Kanarik. When you're done with this episode, don't forget to check that one out too. It's one of my favorites. We just kind of hit it off and we decided just to start working on projects. And we started working, built a whole bunch of random stuff together. And, you know, the second year of ITP, it's like, hey, do you want to dust off that old dodgeball code from years ago? Because Friendster had just come out, right? And it's like, we can kind of say it's like Friendster, but for cell phones. It's like, yeah, that's a cool project. Let's do it. Since I'm busy plugging old Webmasters episodes, I might as well add in here that we've also got a great one about Friendster with founder Jonathan Abrams. That's Webmasters episode number 18, which I think you'll also enjoy listening to. And so it kind of dusted it off. It used to be Microsoft ASP. We wrote it in PHP with MySQL and did an independent study at NYU to get credit for it. And, um, you know, we, we built this thing. It turns into our thesis project and it was starting to get some steam. Like at the time, technology blogging was a thing, right? And so Gizmodo and Engadget would write about things. And then the New York Times would kind of be like, oh, and Gadget wrote about that thing. We should write about that thing. And, and Newsweek would say, well, the New York Times just wrote about it. We should write about it. So before you know it, our little thesis project is getting these huge write-ups in magazines and newspapers. And you know, my co-founder, Alex, and I have this epiphany of like, well, maybe we shouldn't get jobs after graduating. Maybe we should work on this. Maybe this is our job. So we gave ourselves six months to just kind of hack away, eating pizza and ramen every day and working out of the computer lab at, at NYU, just because it was like free office space. They were cool enough to let us camp there. 
And about a year after we graduated, we happened to be at the right place at the right time, pitching dodgeball at a university conference. We meet some people from Google. They invite us to go to the Google offices while we're at Google showing this thing off. You know, oh, pitch to this person, then this person, then this person, then this person. And, and before you know it, we've showed it to 100 people at Google in an afternoon. And then Google's like, hey, we, we want to bring your project in here. We want to buy you guys. And we're like, yeah, that sounds great because we are two totally broke grad students. We would love that opportunity. So, you know, since most people haven't really heard of Dodgeball, but they've heard of Foursquare, we can kind of guess how that acquisition went. But still, would you mind telling your story of trying to build Dodgeball inside of Google? What was that like? So we went, we worked at Google for like two years, and we were trying to build mobile and social and location technologies all in the same group. All this stuff was just being formed while we were there. And, you know, it was kind of a really crazy time and uh, we didn't get as much done as we wanted to get done at Google. And so we were there for about two years and we ended up leaving. We think we had the velocity that we needed to really get stuff done. I know Google eventually shut down Dodgeball, but are there any fun stories from your time at Google that are worth sharing? I mean, I'm sure that must have been at the very least an interesting experience, right? Um, <laughs> we were at the Dodgeball office in Google, New York right after we got acquired, Sergey came by on his rollerblades. He was rollerblading through the office and he stopped by and he peered his head in and he's like, hey, uh, Snowball. And we're like, what? He's like, you guys are the Snowball guys, right? And I'm like, Dodgeball? And he's like, oh yeah, yeah. And we're like, are you like Sergey, right? He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we're like, keep up the good work. And we're like, all right, man. <laughs> he skated away. And Alex and I were like, what the hell is going on in this place? This is super, super weird. <laughs> That's kind of incredible. I'm, I'm not sure I'll ever be able to get that visual out of my head of, of Sergey Brin skating by on rollerblades in the Google office. Uh, okay. Uh, okay. So, so, so I guess I'm kind of curious and maybe trying to find out a bit more about this. I've heard other founders that I've spoken with on, on this show actually directly reference Dodgeball as the reason they decided not to accept an acquisition offer. Google buying Dodgeball seems to be this sort of, I guess you'd say, cautionary tale for entrepreneurs. Any chance you can maybe shed some light on that? That came up in one of the early Facebook books too, where they were going to sell to Yahoo and they're like, yeah, the, the Dodgeball guys kind of had a crappy experience at Google, right? When, when we left Google, we were really just frustrated, right? Like, man, this was the, this was the ticket. We were going to make this thing and it was going to be huge. And meanwhile, we sat in the Google office and watched Twitter take off and Facebook take off. And so we were just kind of disappointed. And so when we left, we took a picture, me and Alex, just like for posterity's take of us with the thumbs down outside of our office at Google. And, and I posted it on Flickr and I said, we left Google today. And I wrote something kind of short and like a little nasty and in hindsight, honestly, a little obnoxious, just about like it didn't work out. We escaped, you know, onto the next thing. We're going to have a party this week. Come to our party. And that was it. But that, that changed a lot. The word Aquahire apparently came out of that. I had later learned, it's like, oh, two guys doing something interesting, but not really a company. It's called an Aquahire. I mean, I only learned that like six years ago. That term was kind of born after the dodgeball deal. And just like that one paragraph of text and maybe the stories that we had told over beers to people had changed the way that people thought about selling their companies to bigger companies and led a lot of people to stay independent. I mean, that, that might have been the biggest thing I've ever done, putting that stupid thing on Flickr. Never mind 12 or 15 years of 
pain and struggle and hustle at Foursquare. Life is kind of weird like that. I can't tell you how many people in the 20 year journey I've had of doing this have been like, oh, I remember that photo that changed the way I thought of it. Like we didn't do this, you know, that's nuts. But people always remember it as us flipping people off and it was a thumbs down, right? So when I left Foursquare, right, and I did my blog post about leaving Foursquare, I purposely went to the Foursquare office with my baby in a stroller and I waved, hello, like not thumbs down, not thumbs up, just hello, <laughs> you know, just as a nod to that old photo on Flickr. But um, what a weird story. For the record, I went and tracked down Dennis's old Flickr post. It really doesn't seem too obnoxious. He and Alex are standing in front of what I'm guessing is the old dodgeball office inside of Google's New York headquarters, and they're both flashing exaggerated sad faces and the thumbs down sign. The caption reads, quote, it's no real secret that Google wasn't supporting dodgeball the way we expected. The whole experience was incredibly frustrating for us, especially as we couldn't convince them that Dodgeball was worth engineering resources, leaving us to watch as other startups got to innovate in the mobile plus social space. And while it was a tough decision and really disappointing to walk away from Dodgeball, I'm actually looking forward to getting to work on other projects again. And that's pretty much the end of the quote. Then there's some additional stuff about what companies they're moving to next. And as Dennis mentioned, uh, he has a few words inviting people to their quote unquote escape party. Still nothing too bad, at least not in retrospect. Regardless, Dennis left Google and pretty soon started working on his next big project. A couple months after we left, Google announced that they were going to turn the project off, the Dodgeball project off. And when they turned it off, we said, well, if they're going to turn it off, they don't want it. Like, let's just build it again, right? Like, the world is different now. Like, the iPhone just came out. People know how to use social networks. People know how to download apps. We can do this kind of same thing again, just through the lens of a lot of hindsight and, you know, with a lot of insight also from knowing what was interesting and what was becoming interesting about this project while we were at Google. And, you know, we started Foursquare in... Um, started tinkering late 2008, started on in 2009. And then uh, from there, it's just up and to the right all day long. I'm just kidding. Now from there, <laughs> it's a company we've been building for 12 or 13 years. We've taken every left and right turn you could possibly take, but we're doing well. We're profitable, like good things in the future for us. We've got a board meeting tomorrow I'm excited about. And yeah. And as one does, I just glossed over a decade of what we did at Foursquare, but happy to answer more specific questions. Sure. Good. Uh, okay. I, I got lots. Uh, let's start with how do you see the relationship between what you were trying to do with Dodgeball and then what you started building with Foursquare? The crux of what I've been trying to do is software that brings people together to have more interesting experiences, to change the way that they experience the world around them. And I think Dodgeball started scratching the surface of what you could do. And then Foursquare, I think, took that to a whole different level because, you know, we have 50 or 60 million people using it at one point. And then, you know, what Foursquare eventually turned into, especially now, we call ourselves the location layer of the internet. We know about every single place on the planet. We know how phones move in and out of those places. We have a whole community of like Wikipedia-esque editors that are in there cleaning the database and updating things for us. Uh, we run geospatial analytics so we can understand like the ebb and flow of foot traffic in and out of different retail places, different neighborhoods. Ironically, we kind of build the tools 
that we needed when we were grad students. Like it was really hard to build dodgeball. It was really hard to build Foursquare. We had to make a lot of stuff from scratch. Like no one had made a venue database that you could easily access and could easily update. And as soon as we started making this stuff at Foursquare, it was like, just put an API on it. Let's just make it so no one ever has to recreate the wheel again because we've already done this twice. So let's just be done with it. And, you know, that ethos that we've had at Foursquare is like take everything that we're doing and make it available to developers so they don't have to do the same work that we've done. That's become what the company is today from like the analytics and venue database and developer tools point of view. So this is interesting because you're you're not really describing Foursquare at all in the way I feel like people think about it. People think about it as social media or this check-in app slash game. But you're talking about something that almost sounds like a completely different company. I like where this is going because the conversation doesn't usually go here. Um, so when we were at Google, the core insight that we had was we were a toy. Like we are a toy to help people go out and get drinks with their buddies. And, you know, I would be at my desk running these queries, these database queries on MySQL, like, show me all the places in the East Village that people go on Saturday morning between 11 o'clock and 2 p.m., rank them by popularity, add a filter to the ones that my friends have been to, add a filter to the ones that I haven't been to. And suddenly you get this list of the best, most popular brunch places that are on the rise that my friends have been to that I haven't been to yet. And I would run that query, and I was like, this is what I'm doing tomorrow. And then I'd run it for my friends, like, here's what you do this weekend. And I'd sit there and like, I mean, this is obviously the thing, right? And so how do you just do this at scale? The problem with dodgeball is that you couldn't get people to use it unless they had 50 friends that they needed to meet up with for a beer every single night. It just wasn't in the DNA of the product. So, you know, when we went to create Foursquare. Foursquare was like another dodgeball, like a smarter dodgeball. I was like, well, what are we going to do? Well, first of all, it's got to be more than just bars, right? It's got to be restaurants and convenience stores and gas stations, any place. Well, how are you going to get people to check in there? What are they going to do? No one's going to come and meet someone at a gas station or a bookstore. Well, let's make a game out of it. All right. Well, what kind of game do you want to make? I don't know what's going to work. Let's pick three games. Let's pick a one-player game that you can play by yourself. Badges, collect all the badges. Let's make a two-player game that you can play against strangers, become the mayor of a place. Let's invent a two-player game that you can play against your friends, the leaderboard, who got the most points for going out on a Saturday night. One of those things has to work, right? Put them all, all three in the app. Well, what if I don't care about checking in? Well, let's um, put the city guide in it as well, and we'll let people leave tips behind of the best things that they found. And every time you go to a place and you check in, we'll pop up a tip that says, the best thing that you should get here is the Eggs Benedict, or nothing is good here, leave and go across the street and get the bourbon old-fashioned, right? So like turn it into a city guide that pushes things at people instead of like, I don't know, let me, let me search for something. Anytime you did something, it would push you to do something else. And we didn't want Foursquare to be a game. It wasn't supposed to be social media. It's just like, hey, you're going to do it with your friends. That's kind of what you do. But it was a city guide. It was a smart city guide built off of data. That wasn't how people saw it, right? How did you feel about the public perception of Foursquare versus what you were trying to build? We just, we were never able to get in front of that, right? Or really push that to the side. And we really, we struggled with that for years. And it was ultimately one of the things that led us to split the app in two pieces. One piece for check-in and there's one piece for city guides, right? Because you get to the point where you've grown a million users a month. You've got 50 million people that have downloaded the thing. And you talk to the newest person that signed up because they heard about it on the Rachel Ray show. And it's like, okay, let's do a user interview with this person. What is this thing? It's like, oh, I check in and I get a coupon for Dunkin' Donuts. Yes, yes, but no. 
you use the thing and it will teach you about all the amazing things that are in your neighborhood so that you don't go to Dunkin' Donuts. You go to the indie coffee shop that's down that street that you've never been to before. You know, that, that's, that's what it was supposed to do. But we never really got there. We did, but not for everyone. You heard Dennis reference splitting the app into two pieces. Foursquare launched a companion app. It's called Swarm, S-W-A-R-M. The company moved all of Foursquare's more publicly recognizable social media and location sharing aspects over to Swarm, effectively creating two completely different services, Foursquare and Swarm. At the time, the launch of Swarm was a widely publicized and often maligned move and I'm sure it cost Foursquare, the bigger company, some of its users, but really it helped them move to the successful company they are today, which isn't quite what Dennis had set out to accomplish, but I'd say it's still pretty impressive nonetheless. You know, you kind of have this realization after you raise all this money and you built this big company, 10, 20, 30, 50 million users, it's a lot of people, but like, it's not a billion users. It's not a hundred million users. And let's say 10 or 15% of them are in the US, which is the monetizable audience. It was really tough to build an advertising business off that that would sustain the company. So then it's like, okay, we got to find other revenue streams. And once you started down the road of finding other revenue streams, which is great, it's the reason the company is here and thriving and doing great. But it also pulls resources away from all the other things that we wanted to do. So I feel like we flew really, really close to the sun in terms of like, oh my gosh, we have almost like solved this problem. But then we pulled ourselves away from it because we ran out of time to invent the future of consumer experiences and we had to dedicate our time to, hey, this is going to be a profitable business that makes these things and grows and can sustain itself. Again, that sentence glosses over five or six years of just like angst and agony and drama and sleepless nights at Foursquare, but it's almost hard to even remember all the madness that's like right in the middle of it all. Okay, so let's talk about this. What did Foursquare evolve into and, and how did we get here? Around 2000, let's call it 2011. We're growing by a million users a month, which is something we never thought would happen. One of our investors is like, when will you hit a million users? I'm like, this thing will never hit a million users as a niche product. And then eight months later, it's a million users a month. And you're just trying to keep up with it because everything is broken every day. You know, like the tech stuff is broken, the database is broken, the company is broken because you added another 10 people to it. Everything's broken. You're just trying to keep up with it. Anyway, so we're kind of like, listen this is not going to last forever where people are taking out their phones and spending 15 or 20 seconds to check into a bagel place or a gas station. Like that is just not going to happen. What we need to do is we need to make a check-in button that you don't have to press. And that was the thing I kind of rallied the company around in 2010. Like, listen, we did this thing. It's great. A lot of attention on us. Okay. Next thing, the check-in button, you don't have to press. How does that even work? That means there's a piece of software that's running in the background. You can't do that. It's impossible. It has to have access to the GPS and the cell signals. Impossible. You can't do any of this stuff. It's going to happen. It has to happen. How do we get to work on it? So how do you end up making all of that work? It, it sounds almost magical. Around 2011, iPhone 4S comes out with iOS 5, background processes, geofencing, right? And the stuff that Apple had built into the OS, we thought was going to be like, oh, this is it. This is the stuff that we needed. And when we got and looked under the hood, it's not. Apple had built something to help you get the milk when you went to the one supermarket within 20 miles, not the thing that can trigger an alert when you walk by the best sushi place and there's an amazing whiskey place right next door to it. Like it was never going to work in New York City. 
the pieces are there to make this. They're baked into the hardware and they're baked into the OS. We just have to build a better version of what Apple made. And so that's when we started work on this thing, which was eventually called Pilgrim. And Pilgrim is Foursquare's engine. It's context-aware, snap-to-place engine that you put this piece of code in the Foursquare app, in the Swarm app, in a third-party app. And as you walk around, and as the phone stops or slows, it starts to figure out like, oh, I, I know this place. Oh, I'm inside of Foot Locker. Oh, I know this place. I'm inside of a Dunkin' Donuts. Oh, I'm in the best sushi restaurant in all of Greenwich Village. And once you've given the device this kind of contextual awareness of like, I know where I am. Have I ever been here before? Is this place any good? Should I go someplace else? Is anyone else nearby? Like, what's the best thing on the menu? You can offer all these services on top of it. And so we spent years and years building this thing. And it probably took us good three years to get it working. And why is it called Pilgrim? The reason it's called Pilgrim is the joke was like, we're on this religious pilgrimage. We are either going to get this thing working or we're going to tank the company trying. We used to hire interns just to give them a phone and a backpack full of water. And I was like, welcome to the internship. Go walk around the city aimlessly, write down the places you go to, and we'll compare notes with what the phone thinks you did. And people are like, this is the sh- internship I've ever had. And it's like, we'll see you in a little bit. Thank you. <laughs> But that's the kind of brute force testing we were doing to tune this thing and get it working. When did you feel like you finally got it? When did you feel like you'd actually built this thing you'd been pushing so hard toward? I think it was like August 2013, where like I went out one day for a coffee and you know, every day a developer would give me, we call it like a virgin Android phone, had nothing on it, had no check-ins, no, 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 just like another prototype go walk around, you know, see if it does anything. And you take the thing and of course it doesn't work. But this one day I went into the coffee shop and as I step in, the the Android phone lights up and it's like, oh, you're at the Little Cupcake Bake Shop. You should pay attention to the Oreo cheesecake, the such and such. And and it said the Dreaming Princess. And I was like, Dreaming Princess? What the hell is a Dreaming Princess? It's pulling these nouns out of the Foursquare database. I've been to this coffee shop a hundred times and I'm going through the display case, looking around, looking around, looking around. I'm like, there's a cake, there's a cake called Dreaming Princess. And it feels like this moment in Legend of Zelda. So I go and I buy the cake. It's like $6 for a slice of cake. I bring it back to the office and I get like seven forks because I have like an exec meeting. And I bring this people cake and I bring the forks and I was eating. This cake is delicious. Where'd you get this cake? I'm like, I just went out and Foursquare told me to go into this place and buy the cake. Like the thing freaking works. And the cake was pretty delicious. But that's like the origin story of this thing working. Once you had it working, then what? How did that change the trajectory of the company going forward? It wasn't supposed to work. No one ever knew if it would work, if it was even possible to do. Because it's one of these things where it's like, Foursquare has no business solving this problem. Apple will do it. Facebook will do it. Google will do it. But they couldn't because they didn't have people 10 billion times saying, I'm at the grocery store. I'm at the gas station. I'm at the fried chicken place. You know, people checking in to train the system and teach you the map of the world and where all the Wi-Fi spots were and the Bluetooth spots and the GSM radios and, you know, just basically drawing a map that was meant to be read by cell phone sensors instead of human eyes, right? It's just a totally wackadoo looking map. But we made that thing. Like we were kind of, in hindsight, kind of destined to solve it because of all the stuff that we had built leading up to that. And once that stuff worked, it changed everything we could do from like an analytics point of view, from an advertising point of view, from a consumer app point of view. And it just gave us a lot more flexibility to be creative, I think, and creative in a lot of different ways from like a business and enterprise perspective too. 
So Foursquare, the company today, really isn't at all the popular consumer app of the early 2010s, right? So what is Foursquare now? How's it operating? Where is it getting all its data from? How's it making money? You know, those kind of things. Yeah, the consumer apps are still there and kicking. I don't know what the, the usage numbers are on them, but it's you know, considerably lower than it was in its heyday. But the company has enough connections with other third-party apps that like we're kind of ingesting data all the time about where phones are, what phones are doing. And then it's anonymized and aggregated for privacy purposes, obviously. But then we can ingest that data and use that to fine-tune our map of the world, which is already pretty well-fine-tuned. And then we have layers of you know different technology offerings, whether it's for marketing or developers or analytics, or we've done partnerships with hedge funds that want to take a look at the data, like, hey, are there more people going into these stores this quarter than last quarter, this week than last week? You know, like we've kind of famously done things, you know, even years ago, where it's like, let's predict how many iPhones were sold on opening day based on how many people went into the Apple store. We did one with Chipotle like years ago. It's just, we started getting really creative about the things that we could do. And instead of us having to sell badges to TV shows, you know, like, hey, get the Jersey Shore badges with your check-in. That was us in 2010. And these days, it's more like do a big technology and data licensing deal with the Twitter, Uber, Samsung, Apple to help power or enhance their location offerings, you know, either in the U.S. or, or other parts of the world. What has that meant for you? What's it been like going from running this massively popular consumer-focused company to what basically sounds much more like a B2B enterprise business? I mean, those are two very different types of companies. Oh, great question. So I was CEO of Foursquare for six years. And then around the time where we really needed to focus on the B2B side of things. Like that's when I decided to transition myself out of the CEO role and I hired a COO. Like he was kind of my right-hand man for a year. And then I put him in the CEO role. And the, the thing was like, listen, I wake up every day thinking about what's the craziest thing that you could make for a consumer app. Like Foursquare doesn't need that CEO anymore. Foursquare needs the person that wakes up every morning and they're like, how do we sell this to a Fortune 500 company? Right? How do we how do we sell these products and service offerings? Right? It's just a totally different mindset. So it's like bittersweet, right? Because I love building stuff. Going back to the beginning of the story, right? Seeing people use Vindigo when I was 25 at a restaurant and being like, I wrote that software. I worked on that software. I contributed to that. Like that's the thing that gets me excited. You know, the software that ultimately brings people together. And for a long time, that was Foursquare. Like you would just sit in the movie theater. I would intentionally sit in the back and I could look over and I could see people checking in. It's like, this is amazing, right? There's 25 people using my app in this theater. This is amazing. You get satisfaction out of the fact that the stuff is just out there. Like people build their stuff on top of our stuff and they just kind of take it for granted. That's kind of what Foursquare is now. It's gone from being something millions of people knew and cared about and wanted to use every day to actually something that lots more millions of people use and rely on every day, but most of us don't even realize it because it's baked directly into so many of our other apps and services. In that sense, the gamified version of Foursquare you probably think of when you hear the name of the company was more like a means to an end, or rather a, a means to a hopeful end, since it sounds like the company didn't quite reach Dennis's goal of providing a curated real-world experience. 
but hey, we might still get there. As you heard Dennis mention, he recently stepped down from his role leading Foursquare, which means he's probably already thinking about his next project. And based on what we've heard here, it sounds like despite his success with both Dodgeball and Foursquare, he's still got some unfinished business. I don't know about you, but I look forward to seeing what he builds next. In the meantime, I want to thank Dennis for sharing his story and the story of Foursquare. If you want to see what he's working on now, you can find him on Twitter. He's at Dens, D-E-N-S. We're on Twitter too, at Webmasters Pod. Follow us there and send any thoughts or feedback you've got on the episode. You can find me there too, at Aaron Dinnan. That's A-A-R-O-N-D-I-N-I-N. And you can find all my articles, newsletters, and classes about startups and entrepreneurship over on my website. That's AaronDinnan.com. Thank you to our audio engineer, Ryan Higgs, for pulling together this episode. And thanks to our sponsor, Latonas, for all their support. Remember, if you're interested in buying or selling an internet business, be sure to check out Latonas.com. Also, be sure you are subscribed to Webmasters wherever you listen to podcasts. That way you get our next episode as soon as it's released. It's coming soon, but for now, well, it's time for me to sign off. Goodbye. Out of curiosity, after your experience with selling Dodgeball to Google, did you ever consider selling Foursquare? We flirted early on with Facebook. Facebook wanted to buy us back like in the early days of Foursquare. And so I got to spend a bunch of time with Mark. And you know, he came to New York and we, we walked around once. And I just kind of underestimated, even back in 2010, just like what a superstar this guy was. So like we went to the park to sit and talk. Right, because I'm like, can't you really go to a coffee shop? Let's just sit in Washington Square Park. And then it was like all these reporters and paparazzi and stuff that showed up. And it was like in the New York Post. And we could get out of here. And then we were walking down the street, and there was people following. And there was like a security truck coming. And it was like, you can't even go get a cup of coffee in the city. And he's like, yeah, this is how it is. I mean, that was 12 years ago. And I just remember that being like, this is a whole different thing. And just being really like humbled by that experience and how naive I was about that. <laughs> oh gosh, walk in with Mark Zuckerberg through the streets of New York City. That's, whew, yeah, <laughs> that's quite the experience.